Well, TJ and I are going to are starting off today with a brand new series, and for this series, a bit of a different style. We're going to actually, I don't know if we call it preaching since we're sitting down, we're going to be teaching together, and uh, the series is starting off with the book of Isaiah and chapter 58, Isaiah 58. And um, so it's a kind of an open-ended series. We have about 12 parts at this point, but it's one of those things that we've been excited about and talking about for a while, but it's a bit open-ended. And so we feel like it's super important and uh, are really looking forward to processing this together and with you. So I'm going to begin with prayer and then TJ is going to start us off with an introduction. God, thank you so much that we can be here today. Thank you for Bridget and for her baptism. Please continue to bless her richly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when I first had an opportunity to speak on this topic, I did it at the Freeport Church, and I had a different title. Uh, and that title was a three-letter phrase that I am sure most New Englanders are familiar with. That phrase was, do your job. And you hear the laughter. Go to the next slide. So Tom Brady and Bill Belichick have had an amazing amount of success over their years. Six Super Bowls, I believe it is. That success is not by accident. When the both of those individuals come together, they have a plan. They have a playbook that they are both going against. They're not working independently of each other. They're not working separately, hmm. and most importantly, they are not working against the plan that they have developed. Unfortunately, as Christians, we have deviated from the plan that has been given to us. We don't always work together as we should, and because of that, we don't have the success that God desires for us to have. So today, in this first session, we're going to talk about what that deviation is and how we can get back on the right track. One of the key elements that we're going to use to help us get into this conversation is trying to understand what the glory of God is and what role it plays in human society. So let me interrupt you here. Why would we be talking about the glory of God? Um, I think it's an interesting topic. It mm. um, has special meaning to our purpose right, as a Christian church. And that's what you're about to explain, that's right? That's what we're going to go into. Excellent. Yep. I think Isaiah 60. That's right. Goes into that. So if we take a look at Isaiah 60, we'll begin our journey here. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. So we can see in these verses there is this contrast right, between the glory of the Lord and this darkness that's attributed to humanity. But we are told that the glory of the Lord will rise upon you. Right? And the Gentiles, Gentiles will see it. Hmm. One of the things that I think it's important for us to do in this discussion around what the glory of God is, is to get a full understanding of what the darkness is, right? this hmm. great contrast that we're seeing. And for that, we're going to go to Romans. We're going to go to Romans chapter 1. We'll start in verses 21 through 26, and then we'll jump to 29 through 31. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Being, oh, excuse me, sorry. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, 
inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, and unmerciful. That is a long list. Hmm. Right? All attributed, attributed to mankind. And this, you're saying, is the darkness. So you said the glory of God right. that Isaiah talks about that fills the earth, that attracts mm -hmm. the Gentiles. We're contrasting this now with the darkness that settled in because... Because... They are in opposition to the glory mm. of God. But take note, if we jump back to verse 21, excuse me, verse 23, they have taken the glory of God. And what that really is, and twisted and corrupted it. They brought the image of God down to their level and elevated man to beast, man and beast above mm. him. So human wisdom has gathered an imperfect knowledge of God. And in their foolishness, they have elevated nature and the laws of nature above God's nature. They profess themselves to be wise, but they're ultimately found to be fools. This darkness represents a misrepresentation and a misunderstanding of who God actually is. But we know better because God has declared to us what his glory is. In order to find that, we are going to go to Exodus chapter 33. But let's set the scene. Prior to that, in, verse, in chapter 32, we have the golden calf experience. Mm -hmm. So now, as the camp has come together, God has told the people that, and Moses that because of their sins, he can no longer walk with them. This causes Moses to be distraught. And he desires of God to know, if you're not going to go to the promised land with us, then who will go? There is this intimate conversation that is taking place between God and Moses. God tells Moses, I will send my presence with you. When we look at Isaiah 63, verse 9, the angel of his presence is referred to, and that's Christ. So God is telling Moses, I will not come right, because of the sins of the people, but I will send my presence with you. And in that moment, Moses asked the question, show me your glory. If we can go to that verse. Yes, sorry. No, no problem. And he said, show me your glory then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I, have, I will have compassion. Moses says, I want to know who you are. Now, you would think that he already knew who God was based on seeing a bush burn that wasn't actually burning, seeing the plagues fall in Egypt, seeing the Red Sea part. But there was something different. There was something deeper in what Moses is asking. Mm. So God will honor Moses' request. And in chapter 34, he commands Moses to create two new tables of stone. The first set, smashed, because the covenant has been broken. Now, in order to restore the covenant, Moses is to hew two st stones himself. He takes it up to the mountain where God is with him. We go to the next verse. Mm -hmm. It's there. Now the Lord descended upon the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." This is the character of God. This is who he is. Now notice that the Lord has descended right by Moses, this presence that we referred to earlier. He then proclaims the name of the Lord, and in doing so reveals the fullness of the Godhead and the character of God as the Lord and the Lord pass by. This is a foreshadowing of the work that Christ would do. The incarnation of Christ or his birth had an explicit purpose 
of revealing the character of God to the Jewish nation with the intent that they would then carry his character to the world. Mm. Listen to the statement from Ellen White. In referring to what has just occurred now on the Mount, this was the fruit that God desired from his people in the purity of their characters, in the holiness of their lives, in their mercy and loving kindness and compassion, they were to show that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So this proclamation that we see in Exodus 34 not only defines to Moses who God was, but it defines who he desired the nation of Israel to be. This was how God wanted his law to be spread to the nations around Israel. Through compassion for their own people and their neighbors, they were to live the law of God to those around them. And God's words are just as significant for us today as they were for the Israelites back then. So then that begs the question, why is this transformation of character so important? Hmm. What is it about this that's relevant for us today? Or is it? Let's go to Revelation chapter 18. Looking at verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his what? His glory. glory. Mm -hmm. And his glory is his character. His character. This is a mirror message to what we see in Revelation 14. Mm -hmm. We are to proclaim the everlasting gospel, showing the duty to love, for man to love God and his fellow man as himself. The message of everlasting truth by the angel flying in the midst of heaven must be preached until the entire earth is lightened with his glory or his character. Hmm. That's why this transformation is so important. It is the catalyst for the three angels' message to be spread throughout the world. As God is merciful, we are to be merciful. As God is long-suffering, we are to be long-suffering. As Christians, we need to manifest to the world the character of Christ. Hmm in every aspect of our lives. To be a Christian means to act as Christ would on this earth and represent him. We shouldn't be looking to excuse ourselves from the responsibilities that connect us with other people. We should be moving forward towards them. We should be looking to embrace that responsibility when we see people in need. The transformation of character is a testimony to the world that the love of Christ dwells within us. The result of that transformation ensures that we can be safely entrusted with the gift of eternal life. There are certain elements like justice, truth, love, pity, forgiveness that must be found in the heart of the Christian in order for us to be fit to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, so thank you, TJ. Just a, a, a recap then. You're telling us that looking at kind of the macro picture of where the church finds its place in history is human beings, through misunderstanding God's character, reap this cascading impact of fallenness. That's right. you, we saw that list in Romans, mm-hmm. that partial list of the dark impact of believing lies about God. Right. And so the church's role, we saw it in Abraham, we saw it in Noah, we saw it in scattered throughout history, the church's role is to restore the knowledge of God to the human family mm-hmm. and to illustrate that through, through actions of kindness, actions right. of goodness. That's the macro picture. Mm-hmm. And it's what Ellen brings to our attention in Acts of the Apostles, which is basically a big summary of that macro concept of the purpose of the church mm-hmm. to reveal God's glory, which you well said is God's character. Right. Not new to us, but a recapitulation or a reminder mm-hmm. of the contrast between the darkness, which I, I really like how you contrasted the darkness and the light of God's glory as a contrast of character. Right. Here's that. Uh, this is first paragraph or from the first paragraph, Acts of the Apostles. 
That's page nine for those wanting page numbers. The church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. It was organized for service, and its mission is to carry the gospel to the world. So Ellen is writing a book tracking the journey of God's people, the journey of the early church. That's the book Acts, the Apostles. And these are her opening words. Let me continue. From the beginning, as TJ has highlighted for us, it has been God's plan that through his church, his people, shall be reflected to the world his fullness and his sufficiency. The members of the church, those whom he has called out in darkness, of darkness into his marvelous light, are to show forth his glory. The church is the repository of the riches of the grace of Christ, and through the church will eventually be made manifest even to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, the final, and what does it say? Full display of the love of God. So this is the incredible thing that as TJ and I have talked together that we have been realizing is for us, and maybe for a lot of us, a fresh introduction to the purpose of God's people now. And we think it's critical for us to revisit and reflect on this biblical um, teaching on the purpose of God's people. Because what we find as we're... Actually, let me not get ahead of myself. You have a, a, um, something you shared with me also from Ellen White that highlights a specific chapter in the Bible. Would you That's read right. that for us? So recall earlier, we talked about Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and their plan, their plan or their game plan. Mm. Right? The preparation that goes into it, the work that goes into it is in order to make them successful right, mm -hmm. in carrying out their mission. We have the same thing. Mm -hmm. This is what Ellen White says. Read the whole of the 58th chapter of Isaiah. No one is to be idle now. Oh, that those who have allowed continual differences to arise could see the loss they have thus sustained. Let us work on the plan given in the 58th of Isaiah. The instruction of this chapter shows that we are to, that we are to do in what we are to do in cooperation with the great master worker. So that's pretty fascinating. Here, you started with the story of Bill Belichick and what was it? Do your job, right? That that's was right. the Belichick phrase. Mm -hmm. Tom Brady and the team under Belichick's leadership actually did their job pretty good for a significant amount of time. And, you know, as, as the people of God, sometimes we, we wonder like, I don't know, here's what I was thinking this week. I was reflecting on the fact that we want as the church to be successful. And it occurred to me as I was coming back to Isaiah 58 again and with some of Ellen's comments that we've read, Isaiah 58 contains the blueprint That's right. yep. or the job description for the people of God that as we're going to find out later in the chapter, actually is the, it's the blueprint to flourishing. So if the church is, is, is struggling, is... Is, is sort of limping along, getting back to this blueprint is the path to flourishing. And we're going to actually find out that the path to flourishing isn't just for a church to flourish, but is for the individual follower of Jesus to flourish. But we're going to get there in a minute. I don't want to get too far ahead because we're actually coming to reflect on that a little bit more. Right. We're going to go to Isaiah 58 now. You can follow on the screen. We're going to... Um, Go through Isaiah 58, 1 through 5, uh, one or two other observations from Ellen White, and then we're going to do a little bit of dialogue on Isaiah 58, 1 through 5, and then we'll move into the next section. Right. TJ, would you read Isaiah, these verses from Isaiah 58? First part of Isaiah 58, we're in New King James Version, if you're following along in your text. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you, you find pleasure and exploit all of your laborers. 
Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? So first piece of the chapter, God calling his people to account. I told you we would have a couple of comments from Ellen before we got into discussion on this section. Here is the first comment. This one, by the way, I'll just jump ahead there, is 6T, and uh, the, the reference is for you at the end on this next slide. Many wonder why their prayers are so lifeless. I told you, we're going to get to this personal revival part. Many wonder why their prayers are so lifeless, their faith so feeble and wavering, their Christian experience so dark and uncertain. Have we not fasted, they say, and walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Isaiah 58. In the 58th chapter of Isaiah, Christ has shown how this condition of things may be changed. So you find yourself in spiritual doldrums. You're like, what do I do to get this ball rolling again? What do I do to find new joy? What do I do to experience the fullness of Christian life? Maybe I need some Christian discipline or some new study guide. Actually, according to Ellen, we get back to the blueprint. Let me continue. This is the recipe that Christ has prescribed for the faint-hearted, doubting, trembling soul. Let the sorrowful ones who walk mournfully before the Lord arise and help someone who needs help. So fascinating. This, this biblical blueprint in Isaiah 58 is not just how to bring a church, restore God's people to flourishing. It's even about how you and I can be restored to spiritual and life flourishing. Right. Let's, yeah, keep yeah, going. Well, yeah, We're going to so, get back to the whole text now. Right. Yeah, go for it. Well, one of the things that I wanted to point out was that when, when you look at, at what's stated here, the individuals have the belief and impression that they're doing what God desires for them to do. Hmm. But it is a stark contrast from what he really wants. One of the things I wanted to call out in, in another version, the CEV, we're going to read verse 5 to you again. And I think the last sentence here really hones what the crux of the issue is. Do you think the Lord wants you to give up eating and to act as humble as a bent over bush or to dress in sackcloth and sit in ashes? Is this really what he wants on a day of worship? So here these folks are, they're coming to their religious services, they're fasting, they're, they're participating in all of the programmatic activities as it relates to what they define as worship. And God is asking, is that really what worship is? Hmm. I think it's a, it was a dire question for them, and it's a dire question for us as well. You know, that's one of the things that as TJ and I were talking and preparing, how do we call ourselves to reflect on the reasons we participate in church in spiritual life? Because I've seen it throughout my time in, in church and ministry that so often we, and I'm including myself in that, have a tendency to see church life more from what it gives to me than for how it empowers and transforms me to give to the people around me, especially the least. Right. So I don't, I don't even know exactly what would be most helpful in inviting you, except to say, I would invite you to reflect on your own spiritual life. What is you, why do you participate in church? Why do I participate in, whether it's church or whether it's getting together in someone's house, like why do we participate in the community of faith? What are you expecting to get out of it? Is this, is, is our engagement in religious activity for our personal benefit? That was the crux here. Their, their full sense of church, church life, was they did the things that made them feel spiritually good. They did the things that made them feel religiously competent, but were fundamentally all self-oriented. 
I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. I, I think that there's, um, you know, as we move into to the next verses, there's a quote um, uh, from Ellen White. I don't know if you want to read it. or, or I can We're read getting it. there, but I do yeah. want to point out one more thing, that the NIV uh, makes a, this interesting note or translation for verse 4. So you can see this is New King James, verse 4, the blue numbers give you the verses there. And NIV says this, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. I can't help but thinking about the general Christian climate today and even within our own circle of faith, how much we, we tend sometimes to get into quarreling over whatever theological or practical issue it might be. And here's what I want to make note of, and this is something TJ mentioned last night, that when we neglect the, the folks on the margins, the people it's easy for us to walk over, when we walk over them, we are incurring moral injury. And that moral injury doesn't just affect then the people on the margins, that moral injury then begins to come into our own circles. You'll notice in the text, what is it? Verse, verse 4 up on the screen. Let's see. Verse 3. No. I'm sorry. Let me just find it here. Um, yeah, verse 3, the end of verse 3. Look at it there. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure. So they found pleasure while simultaneously they were exploiting their workers. So they were a church having pleasure and then uh, their workers were right. suffering on account of it. Yep. And I think one of the key elements is that their worship service results in violence, results in discontent. It's the opposite of the plan that God has intended for us. Right, so that when we, in other words, when we incur moral injury by, by not looking out for the least, that moral injury then translates into, what is it? NIV says, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. Through my time in ministry, I've seen too many times where, where you know, there'll be a group of people that gathers around a certain theological idea, and that becomes kind of their mantra. And then they go find a place mm -hmm. to pursue this theological purity. But then what happens is that group tends to start imploding because they're bringing in this toxicity right. of a self-oriented religious practice that then results in dysfunctional mm -hmm. life together. Okay. Ties back to what we discussed in Romans, right? right? It is they, they have formulated their version of God, right? Yes. Right? They have taken their characteristics and put them on how they deem God to be. And it becomes dysfunctional. Right. I think the big highlight here is when the church is dysfunctional, Whatever level it is, it's a sign that we're off track with the blueprint. Right. So we got to get to the next text. I don't know if you had anything else to mention, but otherwise we can move to yeah, verse can move to 6. Next, move to verse 6 and 7. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring your house bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Hmm. And then Ellen says this. This is uh, Ministry of Healing, page 17. By the way, this is the chapter titled Our Example, and I'm pretty sure it's the first chapter in Ministry of Healing, and these are basically from the first words of that first paragraph. Again, the chapter is our example. Our Lord Jesus Christ came to this world as the unwearied servant of man's necessity. It was his mission to bring to men complete restoration of character. So here's the example of Jesus engaging in unwearied service. And then this one from Christ Object Lessons 386. The glory of heaven is in lifting up the fallen. Remember that? Glory reference, TJ talked to us about some verses ago, God's glory. So God's glory, the thing that illuminates him and that 
is illuminating the world is lifting up the fallen, comforting the distressed. And wherever Christ abides in human hearts, he will be revealed in the same way. Wherever it acts, the religion of Christ will bless. Wherever it works, there is brightness. Fascinating how this interchange of a life of goodness toward others, goodness toward the least and the lowest, is equated to brightness and glory. Right. And I, and I want to underscore the importance of this, right? Because I, I believe that there are times that we can, the concept of worship, we have a myopic view of it, and it becomes confined to what we do within this building, within these four walls. But here God is broadening the concept of what he deems worship to be. It's mm. not just here, right? I would say it's even more so what we're doing out there, right? As we seek to reflect his character, that is an act of worship. Mm. That's very powerful. Reminds me of Romans 12, that we offer a living sacrifice. And so we're bringing ourselves, and so our participation in loving, not just loving, but loving the most difficult right. to love, yeah. is this act of living worship. Right. So here we find ourselves in 6 and 7. Again, they're on the screen for you, and uh, just wanted to take a few minutes to reflect, or a few moments to reflect on some pieces from 6 and 7. Mm -hmm. And I think you had, did you have the CEV on this? Yeah, I do. Or is it good uh, news? It seems like you pulled the CEV up because there were some good things in the CEV. Yeah. So, um, verses 6 and 7. I'll tell you what... <laughs> I'm sorry, it, this, this gets me a little bit, little bit emotional. I'll tell you what I what really... Sorry. I'll, I'll tell you what it really means to worship the Lord. Hmm. Right? So, earlier we saw the question asked... Is this what you think worship is? Mm. And then the response, I'm going to tell you what worship really is. Okay, so, so just to refresh your minds, that was at mm -hmm. verse 5, the last 58 verse 5. Is it a fast that I have chosen? Essentially, is this the kind of worship? Do you think what you're doing, this right. religious performance, this religious up, one-upmanship, etc., you think that's what I'm looking for? Mm -hmm. And this is the follow-up to that. And this is the CEV read on right. that passage. Right. So, worship really means to remove the chains of the prisoners who are bound unjustly, to free those who are enshackled, to share your food with everyone who is hungry, to share your home with the poor and the homeless, to give clothes to those in need, and don't turn away your relatives. This is a stark contrast to I think what most of us have deemed to be worship hmm. and what we do every Sabbath when we come to church. I understand that. It, it was a stark contrast for me as well. But when we understand the plan that God desires for us to adhere to, what he wants us to work on, and as, as, as we go forward, we, this thing will be expanded for you to truly give you a sense of, of why it is critical. We've already seen in Revelation 18, right, that it is our duty to carry forth the glory or the character of God. It is critical to the dissemination of the three angels' messages. We must play our part in that. We mm -hmm. must adhere to the instruction that we've been given. Not in a minor way. This is a major aspect of the Christian experience. It's interesting to me as I look at this text that we, I've often thought of spiritual disciplines as, you know, the, the fasting or praying or scripture reading. Now, we're not here throwing any of that out, but what we're observing is that in the text, the, the core spiritual discipline is not something I do during my devotion time. It's the way I treat the least. You see the contrast here in, in Isaiah 58, 6, and 7, the fast God's looking for is, the worship God's looking for is when his people engage in loving, hurting people. 
That's the core spiritual discipline for God's people. Now, is there a purpose for what we call church, the gathering together? Is there a purpose for worship? Is there a purpose for feeling the joy of community and the joy of music? Yes. The problem in Isaiah is that that was the whole point of being a Christian was the music and the joy and the fasting, and that's where it ended. They, they were consumed with being religious and the experience of being religious and the happiness it brought them. That's, that's a religion that's sick. The religion that is true worship is where the time we spend with God, the time we spend in connection with each other, always results in living selfless lives in the community. That's the whole picture. When that's in place... Then, then we're really worshiping. Right. And we see that in the upcoming verses. In Isaiah 8 through 12. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. Now, I, I got to interrupt you here. Remember that we, we, we looked at what Ellen said about if you're discouraged, if your right. spiritual life feels like it's falling apart, do the Isaiah 58 thing. This, and look, it's right there. You just read it that when we go about the Isaiah 58 lifestyle of worshiping God by living love loudly or radically, when we live that way, here it is right there in Isaiah, as I interrupted you, but right there in Isaiah, this restorative work begins. And it's not only, we're going to come back to this, but I got to mention it here. The light begins to break forth in the church and in our personal lives. The healing springs forth quickly. It's not just like it waits around, but when we begin to give ourselves and continue to give ourselves in loving others, it's not just a slow journey. There is apparently rapid impact in our lives of the restorative work right. of God. Okay, you got to right. finish. Well, if just you have a an, another point fine. on that. So, and the healing, right? receiving healing implies that there was a sickness. Hmm. That's what we see in the early part of Isaiah. And that, that, that text is a reminder to what we see in Revelation 3 of the Laodicean state hmm. that requires God's intervention, right, for things to be set straight, for healing to occur. Let's continue on. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from the midst of pointing the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones and you shall be, you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places you shall rise, raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Hmm. I'm going to read what Ellen says, and then we're going to come back to this because there is so much in these section, this section of text. Christ's method alone, anybody, you might have heard this. It's a fairly common, common uh, text quoted from Ellen. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. I'm going to continue reading because there's another paragraph. There is need of coming close to the people by personal effort. If less time were given to sermonizing and more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. I just want to pause and observe that often what we, what we see as church growth solutions, restoring the church to flourishing, I just find as I look at Isaiah 58, most of what we find in, in kind of the church growth thinking is not apply Isaiah 58. Right. It's some kind of improvement to the programming we mm-hmm. do rather than a radical shift in the way we live right. in our community. Right. And again, not to say that, that those programs are not needed, but perhaps there's a shift in focus that needs to occur. Truly meeting the needs of those around us, right? Mm. Then fosters an attitude of benevolence, of love, where people will see what we are doing and desire 
to come and know who we are. Mm -hmm. So I'll continue. The poor are to be relieved. Isaiah 58 is written all over this. The poor are to be relieved, the sick cared for, the sorrowing bereaved, comforted. Excuse me. Okay, yeah. The sorrowing and the bereaved. There you go. Comforted. The ignorant instructed, the inexperienced counseled. We are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those that rejoice, accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, the power of the love of God. This work will not, cannot be without fruit. That is an incredible piece of hope from Ellen. So here is the text. Again, we've read this 8 through 12. It's packed in for you, but we wanted to make sure you could see it all at once. If you can't see it there, feel free to pull it up on your device or in your paper book. Do you have any comments on this? I've got a few things that I'll get to, but maybe you have... Um... Um, going back to the message, I don't know if, if that's where you were going to touch on, but um, uh, looking at some of the statements here in the way that it's read, if you get rid of unfair practices, this is 9 through 12, quit blaming victims, mm. quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you are generous, generous with the hungry and start giving up yourself to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. So as we set ourselves upon this course right, and we go out into that world where that darkness resides, right, and we become a light around those people, we are then a beacon to draw them to us. Mm, and that light, according to Isaiah 58, is the, is the practical loving of people in whatever way is needed in that moment to simply love them. I wanted to talk about moral injury because I had mentioned how you, you talked about the other night that when we neglect or oppress or take advantage of, yeah, again, in any way when we're not caring for the least and we're, we're putting them to the side, we're looking down on them, when we practice that, there's this compounding moral injury. Well, Isaiah 58, 8 through 12 indicates that when we begin to care for them, that moral injury begins to be healed. It's interesting that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, said those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the next thing they do is show mercy, and then the next thing they experience is purity. So the doing of mercy, the, the practical living out the love of God in our community is literally the way we become ready for heaven. Right. Literally the way we become beautiful people is by participating in the beautiful work of God-loving people. Maybe messy, it may not always be beautiful, but it's, it's this loving, hurting. Right, and it may seem counterproductive, but, but this is God's method. If there are problems in here, we need to fix them out there. Because what that fosters in the heart, right, for us to go out and, and go to the prisons with each other, to give food to the homeless with each other, to provide clothing for the naked with each other. Hmm. Bonds are formed through that. It becomes harder to have an attitude with the person sitting next to you when you've gone out there and you've ministered to people together. Hmm. And another thing I, I think is worth mentioning, if a religion that is centered on what caters to my interests, if that kind of religion results in quarreling and infighting, then when, when I embrace a religion that's, that's um, defined by loving the least, then that means it addresses the quarreling and the dysfunction within. In other words, the dysfunction that comes from a myopic, a, a self-centered religious experience is reversed when I choose to engage in God's other-centered way of loving people. Right. Okay. Now we're on to Isaiah 58 and 13 and 14. TJ's going to read it in a minute, but I'll just tell you, this is going to be short today because Isaiah 58, 13, and 14 is packed. It ties the Sabbath into the Isaiah 58 blueprint. And it's so much that we're going to devote at least two entire teachings to how the Sabbath interfaces and uh, that's about all I'll say. You'll get a little peek of it at a uh, comment that we'll get to in a minute. But read for us Isaiah 58, 13, and 14. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth 
and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. I just got to jump in here. That's an incredible text. We're, again, we're going to unpack more of this, but 14, the last part of it is incredible. This, this idea that as we engage in the work of loving people like God loves people, the people of God flourish. I just want to highlight that the people of God flourish when the people engage in helping other people flourish especially the least and the lowest. When, when we help them flourish, there is this internal repair that happens in the individual believer and in the corporate body that leads to flourishing. That's an incredible synergy between giving love and experiencing love like we've never known it before. Right. And just a, a, a quick note, again, as Nathan said, we're not going to go too far into this, but recall earlier when we talked about ensuring that we're reading the entire plan. Mm. And I can assure you that this is one plan. Sometimes we, we, we have taken this chapter and split it out and used verses to meet our own needs, but it was meant to be read as one chapter, as one set of instructions. And that will bear mm -hmm. out in our yes, future conversations. Yes, yeah, great, great point. Yeah, it's not just a nice text for a Bible study right. on keeping the Sabbath, right? Exactly. It's way, way bigger. And that's part of the excitement that we've had is that we're seeing the implications of this, and you'll, you'll see them more with us as we journey together. But we're talking, we're talking that these implications ripple out into the first angel's, second angel's message, third angel's message, the ceiling ripple out into the day of atonement. Like this thing ripples out into huge tentacles into how we understand end time scenarios, how we understand our place in the world. So all of that is in the pike at some point as we look at the implications for us in the big picture. Mm -hmm. Here's something from Ellen. This it begins, the work specified in, the, in these words, referring to Isaiah 58, is the work God requires his people to do. It is a work of God's own appointment with the work of advocating the commandments of God and repairing the breach that has been made in the law of God, we are to mingle compassion for suffering humanity. We are to show supreme love to God. We are to exalt his memorial, reference to the Sabbath, which has been trodden down by unholy feet. And with this, we are to manifest mercy, benevolence, the tenderest pity, and the tenderest pity for the fallen human race. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As a people, we must take hold of this work. So one of the reasons I put this up is it's sort of a teaser for the next two messages, but it, it just shows that there is this inseparable connection between a life of mercy and the Sabbath. That finishes like this. Love revealed for suffering humanity gives significance and power to the truth. And then there's one more, TJ. Why don't you read that for us? Love revealed for suffering humanity. Oh, this one, faith. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, the one who pardons our sins and transgressions, the one who is able to keep us from sin and lead us in his footsteps, is set forth in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Here are presented the fruits of a faith that works by love and purifies the soul from selfishness. Faith and works are here combined. That's the introduction. But Isaiah 58 is this blueprint of a life of giving ourselves away in loving people, especially the least, the forgotten, the marginalized. And that, that, that is the blueprint for my spiritual wellness. That is the blueprint for the flourishing of the people of God. And it is, in a special sense, essential to the final proclamation and revelation of the glory of God planet-wide. This isn't exactly new. We've actually been touching on pieces of this over the last several months. Our mission and vision statement reflects that. Love God and love people. A slow, steady hum of deeds done to relieve suffering and meet needs. We're familiar with that. But what we've discovered is that actually this is more essential than we've been realizing. And so we're coming back and saying, hey, we got to look at this stuff and explore this and the implications of it and follow it farther than we followed it, at least in a, from a teaching perspective to date. Incredible yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have the last text yeah. for us. Yeah. So we're going to wrap up in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another. 
for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in these saying, in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. The plan of salvation originates from an incomprehensible love. Hmm. And God offers us an opportunity to not only experience that love, but to spread it to others through the plan in Isaiah 58. When we participate in that plan, it produces a warm-hearted, self-denying, self-sacrificing people who are ready to minister to the needy. The plan in Isaiah 58 is meant to purify the soul from selfishness and purge hatred from the heart. It is meant to bring about healing. It is the cure for the darkness in human hearts. And I would just say it is, we talk about preparing for the coming of Jesus. It's the blueprint for being ready for the coming of Jesus too. God, thank you so much that we can be gathered here. What a privilege to be looking again at this chapter in Isaiah. Thank you for the blueprint. We need this kind of guidance And so we're grateful that you've given it to us, and and we just ask that you would help us in this journey as we continue journeying together. Grant us your presence during the week, and may we love radically. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were blessed by today's message. For more content or to connect with us, visit us online at brunswickadventist.church.